Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Inflation through the roof, stocks through the floor, a likely recession in the next few months, Medicare and Social Security trust funds headed for insolvency in the coming years. And oh, yes, (laughs) a crazy housing market. Sounds cheery, Richard. You know, we've got a lot of big economic problems facing our country, but somehow against all odds, I know we'll manage to have a good time talking about these issues today. One reason is our guest. She's a fellow journalist, Washington Post columnist, and a lively contrarian who raises a lot of vital questions about politics, the economy, and public policy. Untangling the economy, Megan McArdle. Even when things are very dark, they're also always getting better in some way. I still retain a lot of hope that um, we have problems, but our problems are basically manageable. I think the the biggest issue is getting the political will to act like grown-ups. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Now, Jim, you often talk about your late father, who was a noted economist. What would he say about the mess we are in right now? He'd probably say it's deja vu all over again. But since my dad is not available for comment, sadly, we thought we'd call up our friend Megan McArdle to sort things out for us. Megan returns again to How Do We Fix It? She has called herself a libertarian, but I have to say, reading her column in the Washington Post, as I frequently do, it may be better to describe her as someone who asks questions that others don't want to face, making her the perfect guest for us. Megan's work has appeared in The Economist, The Atlantic, and many other publications, and she is the author of the book The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. She joins us from the Boston area. Welcome back to How Do We Fix It? Thank you. Always glad to be here. Let's start with the basics. Right now, the unemployment rate is just 3.6%. That's really low. Yet many economists say we're heading for a recession or might already be in one. How could we be in a recession if employment is so strong? This is the possibly the weirdest economy since World War II. You know, on, on the one hand, you have incredibly low unemployment, and you also have supply chain shortages because demand is outstripping our ability to supply goods. On the other hand, GDP contracted last quarter. Inflation is high. Consumer confidence is dropping. Inventories are rising at retail level. And so it is a strange time, very different from, say, the financial crisis, which was terrible. It was the worst financial shock we've had since the Great Depression, but it was also a kind of standard predictable financial shock in a way in in the sense that like the things that we expect to happen in a recession happened like unemployment rose this time i th- i think it is different we're in, we're in kind of uncharted territory we're in a weird economy it's unprecedented that must make it very difficult for economists and others to forecast what's going to happen next 
I think I agree with economists that we're we're probably going to, when the, this quarter's growth numbers come out, we're probably going to find that we are officially in a recession, which is defined as two quarters of negative growth. And I think that, that we have a lot to sort through in the next few years. And it's not just the immediate kind of aftershocks of the pandemic where we're trying to get supply chains back online. We're trying to do all these things. First of all, the pandemic has changed a bunch of things you know, good things like probably going to do more remote work. But also I think it's made people rethink immigration and trade in a way that we hadn't before. And that that is going to have long-term effects on our economic growth because we were, have been so dependent on China. And regardless of whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, if we decouple from China, that means the prices of goods going up. That means we all get a little bit poorer. So globalization brought down the cost of goods through cheap imports Talk as well about the supply chains themselves. For basically the whole post-war period, we've been making our supply chains, and certainly since the 70s, we've making supply chains leaner and leaner. And you know, listeners may have heard about just-in-time production, right? This was the big revolution with Toyota initially, and, and the Japanese firms figured out that instead of having these mountains of inventory, you would try to have just enough to produce, you know, things would come into the plant as you were going to use them, and then they would get immediately shipped out rather than than maintaining these inefficient stockpiles. Jim mentioned his dad being a noted economist. My late brother was the CEO of a fairly large transportation company who visited Japan, was very excited about just-in-time production, and, and one of the earliest executives in his field to bring it in. There was great hope that just in time, and I think some of it justified, would uh, cut costs, cut production costs by reducing the amount of stuff that was just staying in warehouses. Well, it absolutely did. I mean, it was revolutionary. And if you think about it, it's in, a, in several different ways, right? I mean, one thing is you just doing things in a leaner way was actually much more efficient. It did add to the economy. But I think what we've realized in the pandemic is that it was also that those inventories were a kind of insurance policy, right? And that against supply chain interruptions, and that as long as everything went really, really well, the system was extremely efficient and cheap. And then when something really bad happened, the system was broke pretty fast in a way that it might not have broken 50 years before that. And as we saw, you know, I think before the pandemic, a lot of people had this idea that we were just moving towards an ever more integrated world with peaceful coexistence and borders wouldn't matter. And it turned out that when there's a pandemic, borders matter a lot. Governments shut down their borders and they say, anything that's produced in here that we need for our citizens, I don't care if you have a contract, it's ours. And that is going to permanently, I think, for a long time affect how people think. And what about the Federal Reserve? Since the financial crisis, the Fed has been increasing its balance sheet it did a massive increase during the financial crisis and then another massive increase during the pandemic. And in between then, it didn't really draw down that stimulus that it had provided to get us through the financial crisis. So even in 2019, you know, it was a lot higher than it had been in 20, 2007. And that was fine as long as there wasn't inflation. But now there's inflation. And that I think is that's going to make it more difficult for the Fed to react to any recession we have because they don't have the bandwidth to do non-inflationary stimulus the way that they did before. Now, in fact, you know, this recession in, in some sense is the recession we need to have to get rid of the inflation from all of the fiscal and monetary stimulus that was done during the pandemic. The great economist Milton Friedman famously said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. 
So explain what what he means by monetary phenomenon and how does the Fed control the supply of money that's out there? Oh, man, I, that's like a <laughs> that's a textbook. It's not even a podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let, let me let me give the very shorthand answer, which is that in policy, we think about two different levers of kind of stimulating the economy, which is fiscal, which is government spending and monetary which is the Fed expanding the money supply. And in a very, very shorthand way, the way that the Fed does that is by either it puts money into the banking system and which causes then the banks to create more money. Because if you think, you know, your bank doesn't actually have like all of your money sitting in a vault, it lends it out. And when it does that, when it, it, it takes its reserves, it basically multiplies that into more money because it's loaning most of it out. Um, and when the Fed wants to contract, it basically takes that money back. So that the, you know, and as there was a multiplier going out of the banks, there isn't a multiplier coming back in when, when the bank, the amount of money the banks has contracts or when they need to carry more reserves or however you do it, then the amount of money we have to buy houses and cars. And so this is why when you see recessions, you often see them showing up first in things like auto purchases or cars, something that we're seeing now, because those are financed with debt. Another crazy aspect to this economy is the housing market. Could you explain a little bit what's going on there? Because every time I see a headline, it's about rent soaring or not nearly enough homes for sale for people who want to buy one. And that means uh, the price of housing has gone up so much. Well, the good news is that I think that's starting to reverse. And in part, that's starting to reverse because of what we talked about. Borrowing money just got way more expensive. Mortgage rates, you know, when during the pandemic, I refinanced my house at 1.75%. A 15-year mortgage is now over 5%. A 30-year is now approaching 6 or over 6 And people think about their payment, right? They don't think about how much house I can buy in terms of a raw number. They think, what monthly payment can I afford? And they work backwards. Well, if interest rates go up, then you can pay less in principal in order to cover more in in interest. It has to balance out. And so house prices, I think, are starting to come down. But we had, you know, for a long time, we've had two things. Anyone who owns a house has seen an incredible appreciation, especially during the pandemic, if you were, say, in the suburbs. And that was a lot about the, the fact that money was so cheap money isn't cheap anymore. And people are having to rethink what they purchase. But also during the pandemic, a lot of a lot of young people just moved home. Well, then suddenly when the pandemic's over, you have this burst of demand. And so you had all of these things that were pushing housing prices up. And I think that that has now starting to level off. But there's a weird feature when you have homeowners who have come out of a long period of low interest rates, like me, I have a 1.75% mortgage. If I moved to another house, it would cost me hundreds of dollars a month just to buy a house that costs the same as my house. And so you get this weird thing called mortgage rate lock-in, where when you're going from a low interest rate environment to a high interest rate environment, you have a lot of people who don't want to sell simply because they can't afford to replicate what they have somewhere else. This can cause problems for labor market mobility, but it's also going to it's going to just take supply off the market. People are going to renovate instead of moving. And that is so that's actually going to be a countervailing pressure. So again, when I said this is a weird economy, we're looking at a really weird housing market where on the one hand, the price of money is going up. And that means that house prices should come down. But on the other hand, you're going to have all of these people who have these really low rate mortgages and don't want to move and who are not going to put their houses on the market. And that should push the prices of housing up again. So I don't know where we're going. And I think this is something that I think about the poor people at the Fed all the time, how you work through all of these complications. 
You mentioned the 70s. Richard and I are old enough to remember those those bad years when interest rates went through the roof, inflation was really high, and the Federal Reserve ultimately in the early 80s managed to tame that inflation by restricting the money supply and driving what became a really brutal recession. It worked. Inflation came down. We remember the 80s as as boom years, morning in America. But is that the only way? I mean, what options does, you just use the phrase, those poor people at the Fed. I don't think I've ever heard anyone sympathize with people at the Fed before in my life. <laughs> but but what should those poor people at the Fed do? What options do they have? So I think this is a really hard question. Unemployment was 10% during the Reagan recession uh, under Volcker. And it would probably have been easier on everyone if everyone had just taken a 10% pay cut. Um, but in fact, at the voter level, people hate inflation. It seems like more than they hate the threat of recession. They don't love the recession, but they really freaked out about the inflation. And I get it. Like I, I also, I freak out every time I go to the grocery store now and I'm, I'm hoarding, you know, old cheap things rather than, uh, rather than buying new ones, even when they're kind of half broken. Politically, the pressure on politicians, but also on the Fed, is going to be to bring that inflation down, even at the cost of, of a recession. And a third thing, too, is that the part of maintaining stable prices is the Fed's credibility, right? If, if the Fed is not credible, if people don't believe that it's going to, to hit its targets, then inflation can be, expectations can be what's known as unanchored, which is I expect inflation. So now I demand my contract be more expensive and that causes more inflation, right? Um, you know, producers raise their prices in anticipation of, of inflation. Consumers then demand higher wages in anticipation of inflation. And, and so you can get this, this spiral. That I think is, is another kind of big problem with the ideal, which I think is, is probably to keep inflation high for now, bring it down gradually. I just think it's politically and, and technically a, a hard target to hit. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest is Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle. There's a new show that we'd like to tell you about on the Democracy Group. That's the podcast network we're part of on How Do We Fix It? It's called When the People Decide, hosted by Jenna Spinelli of the McCourtney Institute at Penn State University. When the People Decide is a podcast about ballot initiatives, the people who organize them, how they've shaped our democracy. Check it out at democracygroup.org. And now back to our interview with Megan. Given that we have had a devastating global pandemic with incredible shocks to supply chains and a war in Ukraine, uh, all factors outside of our control. Actually, things have gone relatively well considering just how devastating this has been. Most supermarkets are pretty full. You can get gas at the pump, unlike in the 1970s when there were incredibly long lines at gas stations. The system, uh, which clearly has come under enormous strain around the world, not just in the United States, has has performed quite well. Is is that crazy? No, I don't think that that's crazy. I think that the United States ended up doing some additional stimulus that was unnecessary. 
And, it, you know, when Biden came in, he wanted to, in part because Trump had insisted on sending out these checks, Biden wanted to send out more checks. He wanted to have checks with Biden's name on them. And the result of that was that we dumped a lot of money into an economy that didn't need it and that showed up as excess inflation. Everyone is having inflation, but the United States is having more inflation than, than other parallel countries. And I think that that speaks to we made policy mistakes. Can I just push back on that a little bit, though? I mean, for instance, the current inflation rate in the UK is 9%. Across Europe, it's pretty close to what it is in the United States. I mean, if you date the recovery back to when people start vaccinating in March of 2021, our our inflation rate ran consistently higher than other countries for for a year or more. And, you know, there have been blips and and so forth. But, you know, and I, I think that, look, I think this is correct, that a lot of this is due to the supply shocks. A lot of this is due to Ukraine. It, not yet, but I think we're going to start seeing more and more Ukraine level uh, supply shocks. I think that's that's true. Um, but to go back to something that Jim said was inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. There are real quarrels about whether that's true. But I think the, the fundamental way in, in which it is true is that if you have more money than goods, um, then the money is just going to bid up the price of goods. Right. If if you if you have a supply shock and you suddenly have fewer goods and the same amount of money, the price of those goods is going to go up as people bid them up. And that's inflation. And I think that we didn't do a good job of worrying about inflation enough to try to match the supply of money to the amount of stuff we had, even though we knew the supply shocks were there. We knew they were coming. And look, I supported spending a ton of money to support people during the pandemic who couldn't work, whose businesses were in danger, et cetera. I'm not blaming anyone for doing that. But the end result was there was a ton of money just sitting in household balance sheets that then came out when the pandemic ended and tried to buy stuff. And because there wasn't the stuff wasn't available, that bid up the prices. Well, the the Biden administration did throw gasoline on that fire by dumping an extra 1.3 trillion into the economy when there were already shortages of goods and already huge, you know, like hugely inflated household balance sheets. What will be the political impact of all that rising debt? I think that the Fed not unwinding after the financial crisis was a bit of a policy mistake. And I think that not paying enough attention to inflationary risk was a policy mistake. And I think that those mistakes go back to the fact that we have a twin thing, which is that for two decades, policymakers have gotten away with not paying attention to inflation and not paying attention to deficits. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. I think that China is a big one. China has been exerting this steady deflationary pressure, and it's also been cycling the money that we we you know we buy stuff from them. It cycles back into our economy as financial money, right? As as investment money that then lowers the cost of money for people to say buy houses. Um, and all of those things have given the policymakers they they were playing on easy mode. And now they're not playing on easy mode. Now they're playing on hard mode. And because they had had such a long experience, if I don't really have to think about deficits. I can just run any deficit I want. It doesn't matter, right? Or I don't have to think about, you know, inflation doesn't happen. It doesn't matter what I do. I can massively just blow up the Fed's balance sheet. And apparently there's no inflationary pressure. That era is over. And it, policymakers didn't react quickly enough. They weren't prepared for that. And so I think those were mistakes. Are they understandable mistakes? Yes. Would I have done better in their in their position? Probably I would have done worse. And are they they reacting to an unprecedented set of circumstances where it is hard to navigate? Absolutely. We also live in a democracy where it's incredibly difficult for Republicans to argue for higher taxes or for Democrats to argue for lower spending. 
and and speaking of deficits, that makes things worse very often. Yes. The good news from the Congressional Budget Office is our deficit is only going to be a trillion dollars this year. <laughs> but I will push back a little bit in that I think that your your formulation was correct for a long time, but it's now a little bit outdated in the sense that Democrats don't want to raise taxes either, except on like four billionaires. <laughs> and Republicans don't really care about keeping spending low anymore, right? I, I think actually what we're now in is a worse situation than that. At least we used to have like one party would try to keep taxes reasonable, uh, would try to make taxes go up to to match outflow. And the other party would try to keep the spending down to match the taxes. Um, now we're just in a situation where everyone gets in and they just want to spend all of the money without regard to any kind of discipline. Well, the problems are, are they're looming. They're not, they're not that far off anymore. And we're going to have to fix them. Speaking of rising deficits, what is the first crack that's likely to show? Is it Social Security? Is it Medicare? Are these programs um, underfunded and likely to run out of money anytime soon? So in one sense, they are underfunded and likely to run out of money pretty soon. And in another sense, I don't think they're likely to run out of money. And let me explain what I mean. Is the, these Medicare and Social Security have these things called the trust funds. Um, and there's a lot of fight over whether the trust funds are real. In theory, when these trust funds go bankrupt, when they run out of IOUs, which will happen for Medicare in 2028 and for Social Security in 2034, in theory, what happens is they just cut benefits to match what they're now taking in. Now, do I think that's going to happen? Absolutely not. I, th- I see no possibility that Congress is actually going to slash benefits. But what's actually happening, what's actually the problem is that these, these programs are costing more and more every year. Um, And we need to find the money to pay them, whether we're paying IOUs or whether we're doing some fix that Congress just says, okay, here's now an allocation from the general fund. Either way, we have to find the money to pay for these programs. And as government deficits and overall federal debt continue to grow in the coming years, what's the risk? The danger is that the pressure with that $1 trillion deficit that's going up to, you know, 1.4 or 1.6 or in the future the danger is that that people are going to look at this and say, you know what? Um, I'm not sure that the federal government is such a good credit risk. I want more money. I want more higher interest rates in order to lend to them. Or just that there will be something called crowd out, which is as the government borrows more money, it means there's less money available for domestic borrowers. So, you know, all of the productive stuff that's going to fund future benefits, <laughs> building new companies, inventing new stuff, that it's harder for those things to get funded, which makes our economy long-term less productive. Where we're really going to see the cracks starting to show is going to be higher interest rates for government debt and for domestic debt. You know, our, our outstanding debt now, it's, a, it's about equal to, to the total gross domestic product of the economy. So I think we are in a fragile state, not because I think we're going to have a Greece-style meltdown, but because we're going to be forced to make some very, very hard uh, financial decisions, probably in a higher, a, a rising interest rate environment that is going to make people upset because they can't borrow money to buy houses and so forth. And they're not going to want to pay higher taxes on top of that. They're not going to ha- want to want to you know have lower government benefits on top of that. But something is going to have to give. And that is going to be an ugly, ugly reckoning. OK, Megan, so do you have any good news for us? I mean, I'm sure I got lots of great news. Just look at the biomedical revolution of of the last few years. 
And, you know, I talked to people in cancer research and I asked a cancer research, cancer researchers have historically gotten extremely angry when you, when you talk to them about a cure for cancer and they would just leap on you and start like pounding. No, we're not curing cancer. We're, you know, but I've asked more than one person, uh, including some pretty high up government officials in the FDA. Um, are we actually looking at maybe a cure for cancer? And they were like, you know, I'm, I'm ready to start talking about curing cancer. We've had this amazing biomedical revolution. Look at how I, I think we're still the aftershocks of how we're going to think about peer review and how we're going to think about preprints and, and collaboration. I think that is still rocking the scientific community and all to the good. Um, we've had a lot of economic revolutions. You know, there's a bunch of scary stuff has happened, but we figured out how to work from home, which is like an amazing innovation in so many ways. It's, you know, solves problem with labor mobility. So if you've got a great worker in, in Colorado who can't move because their spouse is employed in Colorado, suddenly maybe you can have that great worker anyway. I think hybrid work is going to allow people to you know, only spend two or three days at the office, which means less commuting, less stress, more time at home with family and, and other good things. There are lots of good things happening. Um, and this was true. It's really interesting. You look back at the 30s, one of the worst times in American history economically, and you th- look at all of the stuff that actually comes out of that with... Air, airlines improving and, you know, household appliances improving radically during the 1930s. Even when things are very dark, they're also always getting better in some way. I still retain a lot of hope that um, we have problems, but our problems are basically manageable. I think the the biggest issue is getting the political will to act like grownups. You know, each party at this point just expects to be able to throw tantrums and allow the, you know, I think the Republicans, you know, honestly are worse on this at the moment. Uh, sorry, Republican listeners. I know you, you're mad at me, but it, it's true in both parties. Both both parties, basically, they're like teenage kids with, with dad's credit card is they expect to be able to spend a ton of money and that dad will eventually step in and pay the bill. Well, who's dad, <laughs> right? It's at one point you guys are going to have to grow up and act like responsible adults and deal with the real and serious fiscal problems facing our economy. And no one is there yet. Megan McArdle, helping us to untangle the economy. Up next, a recommendation, and then a few comments from both of us about what we've just heard. So what do you have for us today, Jim? My recommendation is a book that you might have seen in the Sunday New York Times book review section. It's called Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. As you know, uh, Richard, you know, my wife and I are, are big cyclists and we love to get out and ride. We haven't done a 100-mile ride yet this year, but it's usually on our list for the summer to get in at least 100-mile ride. So, Well, in a single day? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but this book by author Jody Rosen is a great history of the bicycle. People often don't realize what a revolutionary piece of technology the bicycle was, especially in the 1880s and 1890s when the modern style, what was known as the safety cycle, where the rear wheel is connected to the pedals with a chain, that was a, that was a huge revolution in transportation. Before that, you had those high-wheel, penny-farthing bikes that were hard to ride and super dangerous. But once they came out with a safety bike, anybody could ride around town. It gave people lots of mobility. They didn't have to rely on 
on horses and carriages and 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 all this these people to take care of the horses and carriages it was especially liberating for women there was a huge connection between the women's suffrage movement and the rise of the bicycle in the 1890s and 1910s it also led to getting roads paved all over the country and the technology of the bike was so advanced and so refined that those skills went on to influence other industries most notably the Wright brothers, their invention of the airplane, owed a lot to their career as bike builders and bike mechanics. They really understood how to build lightweight, super strong structures. Two Wheels Good by Jody Rosen. One of the things that Megan mentioned right towards the end of our conversation was the role played by innovation. It's incredibly difficult to know where the economy is headed next. Uh, so many forecasts from different sides of the political aisle and among various schools of economists have turned out to be wrong in, in past decades. And that is also true of, of innovation. We know it's going to happen, but we have no idea where it's going to come from. But it, it could be a much more exciting uh, future than uh, perhaps we think is likely right now. Yeah, and it's important to keep that sense of, of optimistic surprise in mind. But she did point out something that's often overlooked when people talk about the proper balance between public and private spending. When you increase the sphere of money that needs to go to the government, to, whether it's to pay off interest on the national debt or our various entitlements... That's money that comes out of the pool that's available to invest in the next breakthrough technology, the next life-saving pharmaceutical, you know, the, uh, the, some, the next electric car company. There's a the pool of investment money is fine, finite. So as the government competes for more of it and takes it essentially out of circulation uh, for the most part, it's not getting reinvested as productively as it would be if it was left in the hands of us individual investors or, or others. I see it differently. It's a leap to assume that the government doesn't have the capability to make investments in innovation. More, not fewer dollars are actually needed to help fund scientific, environmental and pharmaceutical research that the private sector won't pay for. Something that we didn't mention in our interview with Megan is that apart from keeping inflation at a modest rate, a mandate of the Federal Reserve is to promote full employment, and it's something that we've had in the past few years. But the argument about the ideal size of government that you raised is, is perhaps something we should discuss on another show. All I'm saying is that there are trade-offs, and there are often people on both sides of the political spectrum who want to deny that there are any downsides to the policies they advocate. And I think our absolutely, I think our show is about facing up to the hard realities and and you know and taking a hard-headed, pragmatic look at our options. We've certainly done that today, Jim. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies, and I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and this podcast is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for 
companies and nonprofits, especially in the bridging space where uh, people of different points of view, different perspectives are, are talking with one another rather than at one another. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.